Welcome to Near East PolicyCast. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. The Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, an American ally in the Middle East surrounded by failed states, war zones, terrorism, and proxy battles. And yet, this country of only 6 million people has remained generally secure, the rare Middle Eastern country whose most urgent challenges are jobs and budget deficits, not jihadism and terror. Listen, Jordan is a a state of refugees. It's a state of refuge. That was David Schenker, the Institute's Alvzine Fellow and Director of the Program on Arab Politics. David was previously the Department of Defense's top civilian policy aide on the Levant region, and before that, coordinated economic development projects in Jordan through USAID. Today, we'll talk with David about how Jordan has weathered the region's storms and what the future holds for this vital American friend in the Middle East. After this. This is Lori Plotkin-Bogart, Kay Family Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. We're joined today by David Schenker. He is the Offseen Fellow and Director of the Program on Arab Politics at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. David, thank you for joining us today. Good to be with you. You have recently returned from uh, Jordan, a place, uh, a country that you know well and travel to often. In fact, I understand you're you're heading back to the region again quite soon. For our listeners, um, can you explain a little bit about Jordan? Jordan right now is at the center of an arc of instability. It borders Iraq, Syria, Lebanon. How has the kingdom coped with the threats uh, and, and instability that have risen in its neighborhood, especially since 2011? Well, it's also borders on the Palestinian Authority. So let's, let's say they're <laughs> surrounded by, uh, by difficult neighbors in a way. Um, Jordan has uh, had economic and security challenges since day one. Since 1946, when it was established, Jordan has essentially been a debtor nation. Uh, they don't have any oil. Uh, they have a lot of people, um, uh, scarce natural resources, the third poorest country, I think, on the face of the earth in terms of water resources. They don't make a whole lot of stuff. Much of their economy depends on uh, transport of goods. They did extremely well in the 80s during the uh, Iran-Iraq War. It served as uh, an economic production point for Saddam Hussein's Iraq. You remember Iraq was surrounded by a hostile Iran and Syria on the other side. So Jordan served as the the point of entry for all the goods militarily and and economically going into Saddam Hussein's Iraq, and they received a lot of largesse from Saddam Hussein in return for that. But the economic challenges today with the border closures uh, since uh, ISIS and Iraq, uh, since uh, Syria and the border closures there because of the war, are severe. As I said, Jordan has never had a very good economy, but it's even more difficult now. So what does that mean? Um, Jordan has an official unemployment rate of something like 16%. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we have to remember, only about 36% of all Jordanians work. That's like the lowest workforce participation uh, of uh, among all the countries in the world. It's extremely low. And and forgive me, the uh, the 36%. Is that counting the, the total adult population, or is that men only? Or? No, that's Jordanian men and women uh, from 18 to 60, okay. I'd say. And that doesn't include refugees, hmm. right? Uh, today you have, uh, on top of that, uh, 
between a million, maybe a million and a half Syrian refugees. Um, uh, about 120,000 of them live in refugee camps. The rest live throughout Jordan or are, are actively looking for work. Mm-hmm. So this puts uh, further economic pressures, both in terms of unemployment uh, or finding jobs, uh, but also in terms of inflation, because you have more people out there buying goods. Apartment prices are going up. The whole annual budget of Jordan is about $12 billion a year. This year, there will be a $2 billion deficit. That's enormous. How is Jordan going to fill that gap? Well, recently they passed a VAT, a value-added tax, uh, passing a 16% tax across the board on a number of goods and services to the people of Jordan. It is a regressive tax in many ways. But uh, they need to fill the budget gap, and so they have uh, put this into into uh, action. And um, there are a lot of complaints about it, of course, but how else are they going to fill this gap? Well, one way that they've been filling the gap is with foreign aid, mm-hmm. right? Now, this has been since 1946. Uh, this year, in 2016, so let's say last year, uh, Jordan got uh, received $1.7 billion in financial assistance from the United States. Um, that's a pretty large number, particularly given the whole annual budget is about $12 billion, as I said. Uh, and that $1.7 includes military assistance and economic assistance. Uh, just to put that in context, now we all know Israel receives about $3.8 billion um, a year from the United mm-hmm. States government. But in terms of Arab countries, right, Jordan has, including refugees, about 9.5 million people living there today. And they received, as I said, $1.7 billion in 2016. Egypt? Egypt has 95 million people, and last year they see, received 1.45 billion total mm-hmm. in economic and military assistance from the United States. So it's not even close. I think the United States clearly considers Jordan a priority and it is um, extremely generous. But that's one side. That's the economic side, right? This is the, the challenges facing Jordan. They can't do trade with Syria. They can't do trade with Iraq. Uh, their borders are closed. They have all these refugees. Things aren't going particularly well. They have no water, no oil. But their other challenge is security. And we know that you have ISIS next door in Iraq. You have ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and a basically failed state uh, in Syria to the north. Jordan has been deploying its troops along the border, uh, both uh, the army um, and its border security forces. Um, to secure the border, because you have had tons of infiltration attempts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Kingdom of Jordan is no longer allowing the free flow of refugees into Jordan as well, so they're guarding and closing the borders from refugees coming across. They're providing humanitarian assistance on the other side of the border, but it costs a lot of money to deploy all these troops. They're also flying sorties, F-16 manned aircraft, and Chinese drones that they own, mm-hmm. and basically mowing the grass uh, when they see al-Qaeda or ISIS operating in South Syria, they are targeting it, and they are supporting uh, moderate Syrian rebels trying to create a de facto safe zone. All this creates money. But there's not a huge problem. Jordan is able to control this border. Uh, they do have suicide attacks, uh, particularly in a, uh, an eastern area called Rukban, which is out of the border with Iraq um, and Syria and Jordan. It's sort of a, a, a tri-border area. Right. Um, there are 45,000 Syrians living out there. On one side of the berm, you have a huge Jordanian military facility on the other side. Uh, but ISIS has infiltrated this 45,000-strong uh, refugee camp and is targeting the Jordanians uh, and, might I say, Americans who are stationed on the other side of the border. That's one problem along the border. But Jordan last year had 
internally, and I'm not talking about on the border. They had basically six major terrorist attacks. Mm. Um, 2015, uh, none, right? And these aren't refugees that are perpetrating the attacks. These aren't Syrians, nor are they Jordanians of Palestinian origin. The amazing thing about it is that the, all these attacks basically have been perpetrated by Jordanians of tribal origin uh, who have long, long been considered the pillars mm-hmm. of the uh, monarchy in Jordan. And these are people who basically radicalized. They self-radicalized. Self-radicalized as opposed to uh, people who go to ISIS as fighters and then return across the border. Right. Now, Jordan has that problem as well. They have three, maybe 4,000 people, depending on what estimate you're listening to, uh, Jordanians who have gone to participate in the jihad, mm-hmm. including um, among them three sons of sitting members of parliament who have gone to fight the jihad either with ISIS or Jabhat uh, al-Nusra or Jabhat al sham one of the al-Qaeda affiliates. Some of these people have returned, have been arrested, but that's not the problem. No, the problem are Jordanians that have stayed behind that have either been so incensed by the slaughter of the better part of half a million Sunni Muslims by the nominally Shiite Assad regime in Syria, or uh, just for other reasons. They were Salafi. They have been pushed over the edge for some reason we don't know. They have radicalized and are perpetrating attacks. And so uh, there's a number of incidents that we've seen, both attacks on uh, Jordanian intelligence headquarters north of Amman. You saw a big attack in Karak, a southern city, with a couple guys who had been arrested earlier, spent two years in jail for trying to get into Syria. These guys probably became even more radical in, in prison uh, and left. And so you have a number of incidences. This is very concerning to the monarchy and, and frankly, to the United States. But even beyond that, we take for granted that Jordan is the probably the most advanced Arab country in terms of um, security apparatus. Mm-hmm. That is their military, their muhabarat, their internal uh, security, what they call the General Intelligence Directorate. Now, these guys are on top of it. That They have a, a militarized police, the gendarme known in Arabic as the, the derak, um, that is very good at uh, clamping down, at uh, doing preventative security. But on several occasions over the past year, these guys didn't live up to expectations. So I'll give you a few examples. Early in the year, you had in Irbid, a northern town, um, eight guys from ISIS who were in an apartment. And uh, they were reported by the locals. And Jordan sent up its uh, crack counterterrorism unit called the 71st Counterterrorism Brigade. These guys are American-trained, top of the line. Uh, they've been to Fort Bragg. And they trained in Jordan with Americans, a very high standard. These guys went to go clean up the eight guys in the apartment complex. The commander of the 71st Battalion was killed during the operation. It took this unit 12 hours to kill eight terrorists in one building. And during the course of that operation, which was supported by the gendarme, the Jordanian militarized police, the special forces and the gendarme fired at each other because communication was so bad. Hmm. There's another incident um, at this intelligence headquarters where one man walked into uh, an intelligence headquarters 20 miles north of uh, Amman, killed five people and walked out. They killed five intelligence officers and walked out. The final one, in Karak, you had a couple guys, jihadis, who were preparing a large attack and they blew up a bomb by mistake in their in their uh, in their apartment, 
they were reported by the neighbors. The police came. They said they'd blown up by mistake of some cooking gas. And uh, the police went in, and it was a shootout, and the police were killed. These men went on the lam. They managed to travel 60 kilometers south from where they were. I think it was Katrania, one town uh, between Amman and Karak. 60 kilometers they traveled till they got to Karak. And when they got to Karak, they, start, they went to the castle. They started killing people, taking hostages. They killed nine tourists, uh, including uh, plus a Canadian woman tourist there. But it took hours. The police ran out of weapons. They're calling out of the window of police headquarters for more guns and ammunition. The people of Karak, who are almost universally well-armed, brought their own Kalashnikovs to go fight the terrorists. The Jordanians take that as a sign of pride. Right? They're so brave that they'll do this themselves. But um, I think the king and people that look at security say, no, this is the government, the security apparatus that should be doing this work. Mm-hmm. All these episodes point to, to one factor, that the king perhaps is losing confidence in his security. Because over a one-year period, that's from the middle of 2016 till today, on one day, the king fired all six generals in the in the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the Jordanian military. Now, these guys were all due to retire, but they never fire them or, or send them home all at once. They mm-hmm. rotate them, they stagger their departure so that there's institutional memory. No, they all went at once. After the Karak operation, the Minister of Interior, who called the, the operation, the counterterrorism operation Karak, a great success, he was fired. And more recently, you had the head of Jordanian's intelligence, the Mukhabarat, the GID, was also fired. Hmm. Now, for him, there's another story. Right? I mean, we can go on and on here, but in terms of the, the, the head of the intelligence, he was let go, and the rumors have been swirling about him for about a year. Half a year ago, two American contractors, two South Africans, and two Jordanian police trainers were killed at a police training facility mm-hmm. by a radicalized Jordanian policeman mm-hmm. who uh, snapped and killed two of his fellow countrymen and you know, two Westerners, including two Americans in uniform. Well, they found out in the investigation that this police officer had shot the Americans and his countrymen using an AK-47 uh, that he bought on black market. That AK-47 had been provided to the Jordanian intelligence to provide to the moderate Syrian rebels. Mm. And somehow didn't make it there. It was sold on the black market. And so there's a problem with the Jordanian intelligence. And so it had been rumored that the head of intelligence would be fired for some time. He eventually uh, was let go about two months ago. But if you look at this in total, and beyond the killing of the two Americans and, and the others in the police training facility, you had just six months ago or five months ago, you had three Americans killed at a military base in South Jordan. Uh, by a radicalized, seemingly radicalized, or otherwise sick Jordanian uh, military uh, officer um, who shot and killed in cold blood three American Special Forces officers in South Jordan. This puts it at five Americans killed in Jordan within a one-year period. Uh, That is more Americans killed by friendly fire than in Afghanistan in the same period. Hmm. So there is a real security issue here going on. So you've you've laid out a a full agenda of economic and security challenges facing the kingdom and the ways in which the king uh, and the palace are are trying to get to to grapple with challenges. But stepping back uh, a bit, what are 
are. What are America's vital interests in Jordan? And, and how should the U.S. government be acting to pursue those interests given the economic and security challenges that the Jordanian regime is facing? Jordan is, I think, without a doubt, the best um, U.S. partner in the war against terrorism. The Jordanian monarch, King Abdullah II, the palace, the leadership of the country is, is enlightened. It is moderate. It is pressing for a more moderate version of Islam. Uh, it has a pro-West vision uh, of the region. It has a peace treaty with Israel. If you look at the fight until now against ISIS, Jordan is really one of the few Arab partners uh, that we can count on. Not only our U.S planes, personnel uh, based in the kingdom and actively flying operations in Syria, um, doing the organization and the legwork for uh, the Raqqa invasion, Mm -hmm. much of which from the kingdom. You have uh, the Jordanians themselves participating in special forces operations on the ground in Syria, side by side with Americans. Mm -hmm. Nobody else is doing that. Egypt doesn't do that. Right? We don't do these type of things with Saudi Arabia, even though we have a close relationship with them or with the UAE. So Jordan really puts their money where their mouth is. Anything we ask of the Jordanians in terms of the war against terrorism, they are a partner. And, um, and they are a reliable ally in this fight. They believe in it. They recognize it's in their interest. They also work very closely with Israel. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know they they're working with them militarily. Uh, they're sharing intelligence with them. But uh, even more, I think, importantly, in the long run, uh, they're doing business with Israel above the board. Mm-hmm. Right? This is a, a form of normalization, uh, which is um, unique, really, among Arab states in in terms of uh, the natural gas purchase. 10, 15-year, $10 billion deal they've signed with Israel. So for the United States to have not only a, a reliable ally in the war against terrorism, a force uh, for regional moderation, a, a point of stability, um, as you mentioned earlier, in uh, what is otherwise an incredibly unstable region. This is the value of that is inestimable for, uh, for Washington. And you can imagine on the flip side, what would happen if Jordan wasn't the stable pro-West country that it is? Uh, the region, uh, for all its you know, horrific developments, would look so much worse. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and getting back a bit to the relationship with Israel, one common thread that uh, we hear from observers of the, uh, the new Trump administration is that there, there may be an attempt to try to persuade our Arab partners that are working under the table with Israel to put their relations, their positive uh, interactions above the table and make them public, make them acknowledge. Is there anything from the uh, now, I guess, 23 years of uh, open uh, relations between Israel and Jordan that can help inform that effort or help persuade our Arab allies to work more openly with our Israeli allies? Well, let's say that um, that the palace is way ahead of the people in terms of uh, their acceptance and embrace of their Israeli neighbors. Mm-hmm. Uh, Israel is not popular in Jordan. Uh, I don't think that would come as a surprise. There's many people who don't like the peace treaty in the kingdom, um, many people who 
uh, don't appreciate uh, the value not only of the security relationship with Israel, but also how that helped um, foster a change in orientation of Jordan from facing toward and embracing Saddam Hussein mm-hmm. to to really receiving all this largesse and having good economic and military relations with the West. And what made that possible in large part was the peace treaty with Israel. You know, I don't want to put the king in any more awkward position than he already is. Mm-hmm. I think he does a lot for uh, normalization, regional acceptance of Israel, but he's in a bit of a pickle. Um, the king, uh, the Hashemites, uh, the family that the king is from that traces their lineage directly back to Muhammad, at one time uh, were the guardians of Mecca and Medina mm-hmm. until they were booted out by the Wahhabis. Today, they are in charge of, um, and perhaps this is a consolation prize, but the third holiest spot in Islam, uh, which, is, uh, which is Jerusalem mm-hmm. and uh, the Masjid al-Aqsa. It is their job, and they see it as their role, to have a special protective role over, um, over Jerusalem, um, over the Muslim and Christian holy sites. This is a point of contention at times with the Israeli government, a point of tension, and not because the Israelis are trying to some reason deny Jordan that role, but uh, there may be differences on how certain security situations are handled in Jerusalem, access uh, to the Temple Mount, etc. Mm-hmm. And this puts the king in a precarious situation. We know that the kingdom, if you're not counting the Syrians, um, the kingdom has you know, an estimated 60% Palestinian origin population. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been uh, for the past let's say, six years since the Arab Spring started in 2011. It's been, I think, great for Jordan. They had their own sort of threat about the Arab Spring, but what they didn't have is any mention of the word Palestine since Mm. uh, 2011. With all the focus on other issues, which are at times uncomfortable for the kingdom, the economics, the focus on corruption, etc., but no Palestine. This is one of these issues that perennially has been a rallying point in the kingdom, uh, has brought out people to the streets. Uh, that hasn't happened. And Palestinians, by and large, haven't been protesting about corruption or about other issues uh, in the kingdom either. So let's say overall, you know, it's very comfortable for the king not to have to worry about this particular issue with all the other things on his plate right. since 2011. Well, once again, with talk of the peace negotiations getting going again, it can be a plus in some ways for the profile of the king to enhance his value and stature in the West, um, maybe to get some more perks from the West in terms of financial assistance, loans, economic assistance, stature, etc. But if this doesn't go anywhere, you know, uh, I'm not sure the Jordanians are going to want to be too closely associated with it. Aside, though, from the current level of, of aid and assistance, uh, both military and, and general economic that the United States provides, what should our government be doing to protect our interests and also to help the Jordanian government, Jordanian society, maintain their stability and, and, and advance? Well, the king has now seen President Trump twice. It had been thought that the king was looking to get a commitment from the administration for another what they call memorandum of understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, the king signed one with the Obama administration for a billion dollars a year. And that would be the baseline funding, and that runs out at the end of 2017. 
That's a lot of money. But, of course, Jordan got over and above that. They got supplementals, additional funding, assistance for the refugees, um, other uh, excess defense articles, etc. That brought it up to 1.7. The king was thought to have wanted to ask uh, President Trump for $2 billion uh, MOU. And then, of course, you can imagine all the all the other plus-ups that would go with that. Okay. So this would have been a large increase. Now, uh, I think the Jordanians are aware that uh, the administration wants to decrease the State Department budget where all this money comes from. Mm-hmm. So that may not be in the cards. I think at a minimum, the United States should be looking at uh, maintaining the consistent baseline funding uh, for the kingdom of around what we're doing now, $1.5, $1.7 billion a year, mm-hmm. uh, about half and half, half economic, half military. Uh, this is a kingdom that you can't really risk. Right? Right. You can't leave things to chance. It's so important to us. So money is one side. Training, security, we, we do all that. We do the border security stuff with them. We've done huge programs. They have aerostat balloons there. They have everything you can imagine, all the bells and whistles, right? We, They have F-16s. They have money for follow-on, for, for maintenance, et cetera. They have bigger issues, right? Um, the, the most important thing we can do for them is to end the war in Syria, right? Uh, enable some of these, you know, one, 1.4 million Syrians to go home. It's enormous pressure on the kingdom. Now, no, everybody knows you can't refool these people. You can't send them back, right, in a, a dangerous situation during war. Can we establish some sort of safe zone in the mm-hmm. south? Uh, can we push the Russians to do that uh, with, you know, United Nations support, um, with uh, Jordanian support, with um, uh, a broad range of international partnerships. Um, can we make that happen, uh, of course, with the Russians? Right. Um, that would be very helpful. We have to help them create jobs because I can't imagine you know, a better recipe for radicalization than living in a country where you have no opportunity whatsoever and there is enormous level of relative deprivation there because you have people who have done very well in Jordan, extremely mm-hmm. rich, and they're living side by side with people who, you know, 40, 50 percent of the population that is below the poverty line it creates enormous amounts of resentment, I can imagine. To Jordan's south, there is Saudi Arabia, which has just embarked on what it calls Vision 2030, which is in a program that's intended to diversify the Saudi economy. Is there anything similar going on in a a systematic way in Jordan? It's not a case of attempting to diversify an economy dominated by one industry. But nonetheless, Jordan needs a diversity of economic productions going on. They need more light industry. They need more regular commerce. They need more finance. What's going on in Jordan that we can support or encourage uh, on that front? Well, I think one of the things is just starting to take hold in terms of intellectually is the idea of vocational education, mm. right? Um, everybody there, in terms of status, want their kids to be a, a, an engineer, a, a lawyer, a doctor. What they need, what people of certain you know educational background need or in, in a place like Jordan, they need they maybe need more electricians or more plumbers yeah. and people that, you know, can take a truck out every day and go make an honest living and be able to feed their families mm-hmm. um, without 
you know, going and so one of these training facilities, and we're, and we're working on that. The United States government's working on that. They have something. Um, I'm doing actually research into it now called the uh, uh, Jordan Competitiveness Program, which is a $50 million multi-year USAID project. Hmm. They say their goal is to create 40,000 jobs in the kingdom. Now, I think they're more than halfway done with the project. They've created, I think, 800 jobs so far. <laughs> it's not, uh, now maybe they have other successes under their belt, but certainly by that measurement, I think this is the biggest problem for the kingdom. You have a very young population mm-hmm. with no prospects. They have an enormous number of, of educated people in the kingdom that are working in the Gulf yeah. and sending back their remittances, which are a very important part of the Jordanian economy. But if oil prices stay low and you have countries like Saudi Arabia that as part of their 2030 initiative say, no, we want to start hiring Saudi people to do our jobs, what's going to happen to these Jordanian expatriate laborers mm-hmm. uh, in the Gulf? I mean, right, Jordan can't create enough jobs for these people. On the other hand, paradoxically, there are, who would imagine, 635,000 Egyptian, Egyptian expatriates Working in the kingdom. Now, and, what what are they doing? Yeah, they're, what are they doing? They're doing agriculture. They're If you go to a cafe and get an argila, you smoke a shisha, a tobacco pipe, mm-hmm. you get a tea, your waiter's going to be Egyptian. Hmm. Now, the Jordanians want the Syrians to take those jobs, right? Uh, but there are just things that Jordanians don't want to do. They have these places. They call them QIZs, Qualified Industrial Zones. Hmm. Um, well, my, my colleague Haisam is writing about them here. It's an Israeli-Jordanian and Israeli-Egyptian cooperation. They, they form these things after the peace treaty. They have some Jordanian content, some American con- uh, some Israeli content, and some Jordanian uh, content, investment, and employees and the products that come out of there get sold duty-free in the United States. So I went up to one of these QIZs in Irbid, expecting to see all these Jordanian laborers. And what I see, I saw thousands of women in saris from Sri Lanka and Malaysia coming out of the factories. They import the labor for these, these factories in Jordan. Because mm. Jordanians either A, don't want to do them, or the Jordanians think they can pay the Sri Lankans and the Malaysians less. This is not a recipe for for success in the long term. Looking at what Jordan has has weathered and where it is, if we were to project ahead into the next decade, into the 2020s, what would you call a realistic worst-case scenario? And what would be a realistic best-case scenario that we could hope for in Jordan in five, eight, ten years' time? Listen, Jordan is a a state of refugees. It's a state of refuge. We have... You know, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who came in in 48 and 67, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis who came in in 1991, 2003, uh, 400,000 more Palestinians who were kicked out of Kuwait in, 2000, in 1991. You have you know, the better part of a million, you know, million and a half Syrians. And the amazing thing about it is that these people, by and large, aren't beating each other up. They're not killing each other. Right? They're somehow getting along. They have yeah. enlightened leadership. They have a system that works. And periodically, tempers flare. But these days, I mean, people always used to talk about the divide between East Banker, you know, tribal Jordanians, and West Banker, Palestinian origin Jordanians. That 
that divide is less important now than, than ever. People don't talk about it as much as intermarriage. These social divisions are going away. Maybe we'll see them reemerge with all these Syrians if they're taking Jordanian jobs, etc. But we just haven't seen it. And I think that's a good news story. And part of what makes that possible is that you have this enlightened leadership, but also a leadership that until now has been able to provide security. Yeah. Right? Jordan is not Iraq. Jordan is not Syria. It's not even Egypt. Right, you periodically have these attacks, but they're not sustained. Uh, the GID, the intelligence service, is on top of it. But I worry that ISIS, that Al Qaeda, they will be so persistent on Jordan because it is one of these states that, until now, has worked. <laughs> they will look to sow the seeds of discord, and I worry about what would happen if Jordan becomes an unsafe place. And you can imagine. You know, in 2005, you had the Amman Hotel bombings, three bombings of three Western hotels, 60 people killed, 120 wounded. Um, until then, a lot of Jordanians had sympathy for Al-Qaeda. It ended then, yeah. right? Until the, the killings of the pilot Kassas, who crashed over Raqqa, there were many Jordanians, 20, 30%, who sympathized with ISIS, right? I think after the burning of this pilot, that, that changed. But if there's insecurity in the kingdom, will mm. people lose, lose confidence in their leadership in the system that works in this sort of more tolerant coexistence? Um, and that's, I think, a point of concern. I don't mean to say that's going to happen. I imagine, like I said, these people will be very persistent in trying to attack Jordan and undermine the stability there. They are the best ally of the United States. The best case scenario, well, maybe they find oil. <laughs> I don't um no uh, seriously uh, Jordan is doing great things with renewables. Mm -hmm. They have miles and miles of solar fields. Uh they're doing wind energy. They're thinking creatively of oil shale. They've they've got they're diversifying plus they've got the Israel supply. I think these are all very good things if they get some help from the Gulf. Back in 2011, they had gotten a huge commitment of up to $5 billion. It turned out to be slightly less in the end from Saudi, UAE, and Kuwait yeah. to help them do some more infrastructure projects, put people back to work, buy them a little time to, do, to finish off with their economic reforms, weather the storm, and start working on how to get these people to work. Yeah. I think you can have, um, hopefully, a country that will be successful, stable, and secure, and be able to accommodate what is a you know a, a population that, because of its stability, is growing by leaps and bounds. We've been speaking today with David Schenker. He's the Offscene Fellow and Director of the Program on Arab Politics here at the Washington Institute. David, thank you again so much for joining us today. Good, good talking to you, Scott. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Music